Hey everyone, welcome back to Southern Fried Storytime and Merry Christmas to all of you. I am so excited to do this episode. I've been working up to it for a while. My hand is still completely cramped from writing up the script and it's going to be kind of a different episode this week really because the only way I could do this story perfect justice would be to literally just read it out loud from the original version. So today we're going to be covering Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and uh, we're going to cover some of the different versions of this story that have come out and kind of compare and contrast them, which means naturally we have another episode of Disney Lied to You. Because Disney covered a version of the story, I believe, in 1983 with Mickey's Christmas Carol. So it's before I was even born. It's been a while. Um, then, of course, there's the Muppet Christmas Carol. There is a version starring Patrick Stewart, which until recent years was, I think, the best version. Until the Jim Carrey version, which pains me to say, because I am not the biggest Jim Carrey fan in the world. I think he's a little manic and a little crazy. A lot manic and a lot crazy. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he's just not my cup of tea, but I understand if you do like him. So it really does surprise me how many times uh, the version of the movie starring Jim Carrey actually does hit a lot of the same story notes pretty perfectly, especially when you kind of get a hold of the Victorian context. Again, I don't think writing a script with my version of the story the way I normally do with fairy tales would do this justice. Usually fairy tales are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old, and they're vague. Often the main characters don't even have a name, so I have to kind of pick one or name one up, or name one up, make one up. Um, Dickens's fairy tale, we do have the concrete original version, not just something written by the Grimm's after it had been passed around year after year after year, century after century. So, um, you know, we have a much more accurate version, and it's not only accurate, but it's easy to get a hold of Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Every library has it, and it's very thin, a very small story. You can read through it pretty quickly, and so really there's no way I could write a script approximating this story that would do it justice in the same way that I do with other fairy tales. It's just too easy to get a hold of the original version, and frankly... I mean, you guys have heard me right. I, I'm all right, but I'm definitely no Charles Dickens. He was, you know, a genius. So what I'm going to do is just kind of go ahead, kind of beat per beat through the main story beats. We all know the story by heart, so you don't need me to dig in too terribly deeply. You all kind of get the idea. So I'm going to go through and just hit the main story points and compare and contrast how they are represented in the various movies, who did it right, who kind of belly flopped, and we'll see if you agree. I'm hoping to get some, some comments and feedback on this one. So again, we're contrasting the actual book, Mickey's Christmas Carol, the Jim Carrey version, and the Muppets version. And of course, uh, if you've watched The Man Who Invented Christmas, that will give you a little more context also into what was happening in the Victorian times. Now, at the beginning of the 19th century, Christmas was actually very rarely celebrated. It had kind of gone out of favor. It was rapidly becoming a very obscure holiday. Most businesses didn't even consider it a holiday. It was 
pretty unusual to celebrate Christmas, which is crazy to those of us today where it's kind of the crowning jewel on the holiday calendar. Christmas is kind of the king kahuna, the biggest holiday of them all in our year. I'd say probably for most Christians, Easter is a close second, but Christmas is undoubtedly the king of all the holidays, and we tend to do the most and be the most busy for it, preparing weeks ahead of time. So to us, it seems insane that there was a time really not all that long ago where Christmas almost disappeared completely. However, by the end of the 19th century, it was, as we know it today, the largest holiday on the calendar, often having some of those same traditions that we think of today. A lot of people credit the change in the attitude towards Christmas to Queen Victoria marrying the German Prince Albert, yes, that Victoria and Albert, and, uh, you know, pictures of them being sent out into the public, of them decorating Christmas trees, and just partaking in a lot of Christmas traditions that we consider normal today, and that's part of why we have that stereotype about so many of those Christmas traditions coming from Germany, a lot of the Santa Claus legends, you know, come from Germany, and that's because that was the way in which Prince Albert celebrated Christmas in his boyhood, and so these traditions were kind of taken from Germany to England, where they became mainstream, including the decoration of the Christmas tree. Five years before this marriage and all of these lovely, you know, charming, whimsical family photos, however, Charles Dickens wrote, A Carol in Prose Being a Ghost Story of Christmas or a Christmas story, or sorry, a Christmas carol, a Christmas story. No, that's a, that, that's a totally different thing. I'm going to need a different podcast for that one. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do a Christmas story. Um, now, it seems kind of funny to us that they made a ghost story, Christmas carol story, um, but culturally at the time, that was actually really normal. If you did celebrate Christmas at all, it uh, was often celebrated by having ghost stories around the fo- the fire. There's actually a couple lines in some Christmas carols about this. You know, there will be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. Please excuse my singing, but yeah, ghost stories were the thing. Like, Christmas was their Halloween back then. It was almost all exclusively ghost stories, and often if you look at old Victorian books, the illustrations in there will be pretty creepy, especially ones pertaining to Christmas stories, because ghost stories were the order of the day back then, so they didn't have kind of our O. Henry stories about the wife, you know, selling her hair to get a gift for her husband, and him selling his watch to get her barrettes for her hair, you know, those kind of more charming, whimsical Christmas stories. No, they were typically ghost stories. I don't know how ghost stories came to be so strongly associated or how they kind of faded away over time. But now when we think of Christmas ghost stories, a Christmas carol is pretty much what we think of, Um, which is kind of funny that it would become the definitive Christmas ghost story when there were so many back at the time when it was made. Um, Yeah, also this story kind of did a lot to popularize Christmas, probably not as much as, you know, the royal couple being engaged in Christmas. That was kind of the, they were the Kardashians of their time, only classy. And so, you know, they were the less trashy version of that. And so they were the big celebrities of the time, the people that everybody looked forward to. So they really cemented Christmas's popularity, but it had been growing in popularity since Dickens's 
I don't want to say novel, novella, I guess. It's it's a tiny novel. Um, it really is just a wee little tiny book, so it shouldn't be too hard for you to get through if you have an interest and if you have Christmas Day off. It, I promise it won't take your whole Christmas Day. Um, I got through it pretty quickly. I don't know, I want to say a little more than an hour, and I'm not a particularly quick reader when it comes to Old English, so if I got through it that fast, I'm sure you can too. Now, the appeal to the people of England on behalf of the poor man's child was originally the title of what Dickens wanted to write, which is quite a mouthful, and it was meant to be kind of more of a sophisticated spanking for society rather than an actual story relatable to the people. And so rather than kind of do this intellectual um, kind of scolding to the people of England, he changed it to a story in order to make the main character be kind of pitiable and relatable in order to use that as commentary on the social problems happening in the day rather than just kind of outright yelling at people. He made it a little more metaphorical, made it into a story, which I think is part of why it has lasted to this day. When you yell at somebody or scold them or embarrass them, they tend to be very indignant about it at the time, and then later they will put away the substance of what you've said and just retain the anger. And so I don't think A Christmas Carol would have the impact that it has if he had just published his original article that was a, a criticism of society. I think by making it a story, he made it much more palatable, but he also made it much more, I don't want to say contemplative, but sort of, yeah, <laughs> because you were more prone to think about it and think about the different characters, their meanings, their symbolism, and how it relates to you as opposed to getting preached at where you're just going to dismiss it. <laughs> well, that guy's just angry, you know? <laughs> so, you know, you don't really tend to think about it in terms of how you can change, whereas with a story, over time, you do kind of humanize yourself into the character. So I think it was a very wise decision on Dickens' part to change it to a story rather than an article. Um, let's see, really, um, it was kind of a response to a report that had been just come out and been published about child labor. Children were working often 16 hours a day, six days a week. Boys would work in coal mines and drag coal carts. Girls were working in seamstress shops and basically sweatshops at the time, and this was totally normal in the day. Workers were crowding into cities, and industry meant that using children were low-wage workers. They were the lowest-wage workers, and there were plenty of them. So as kind of industry took off, people were leaving the country and coming into the city to find jobs, but with so many people coming into the city, the consequence of them all coming in at once to find jobs meant that they could be hired for less, because you could easily hire someone else for a cheaper wage. There was just so many people in the job pool, and so... I don't know, they, they went to the city to find jobs and have a better life, but I think in some ways they kind of shot themselves in the foot just by adding such a glut to the market. It became very, very popular back in those days to theorize on how or whether you should help the poor. The common thought was that the poor were poor because they were lazy and immoral, which may or may not be true in a classist, hierarchical society like old Europe. Um, you know, often there are many cases of people who would earn a lot of money but could never gain any status or privilege because 
they were born into a lower social class. So while it is assumed that the poor were poor because of how they lived their lives, and that may have been true for some of them, there is something to be said of the social hierarchy there and the difficulty in Europe that there was moving from one social class to another. Now this is starting to make its way across the pond. You see a little bit more of that in America these days. However, the classic American dream is that you can work your way up. And that's starting to also be more popular or powerful, popular, and possible in Europe. However, um, it does come from a very classist hierarchical system where if you were born into a lower class, you could maybe, before you died, if you work really, really hard, make it to lower middle class. <laughs> you know, like, like you didn't see people like Walt Disney who went from delivering newspapers without any shoes when they were a kid to one of the biggest business owners in the entire world when they were an adult. It's not how things were in the Victorian day anywhere, really, and especially in Europe. And so I think, um, you know, while a lot of that has changed, especially, you know, here and in Europe, I think it was something that was very difficult to get past because it was just kind of the way things had always been. And, um, because of that, there was this thought that the poor were poor just because of, you know, mismanagement of their funds or being too lazy to earn funds when often you were trapped in your own social class, regardless of how much you worked, you were on a hamster wheel. And I think this is less true today than it was in Victorian times, but... I think for some people that may be the case. On the other hand, I do think that there are a lot of people who could do a lot more to improve their situations and do not. <laughs> so I think most of the time these days, um, complete and abject poverty is usually preventable with certain well-planned behaviors. But, um, you know, there are cases where there's somebody who just falls upon a terrible, terrible time and everything horrible that could happen to them does. So I'm not saying that everybody, you know, that I agree with the economists of the time and that everybody who's poor, it's their fault. However, largely, often, it is. And while this is the case today because of the opportunities that we have, I think back in, again, Victorian times with those social hierarchies, I think if you were born into a class, no matter how hard you work, no matter what lucky things came your way, no matter how perfectly the stars aligned for you, you were kind of trapped. And uh, we can only just be so fortunate that that's not how it was or how it is today. But often because of it being that way in that time period, that's part of why that social system has been challenged and changed as much as it has been today because of the frustrations of the people in that time period wanting to make things better. And so generationally, I think it has been, where now I think poverty is usually a consequence of bad choices. I think um, that's not a particularly compassionate way to view it, and I think that's kind of what Dickens was saying too, that we need to view this kind of situation with more compassion but at the same time, I think right now in our time period today, we're a lot more responsible for our fate than perhaps they were then. Because you often inherited your social class. Now, it was thought, this is kind of where things get really dark, that helping the poor would only encourage this lazy 
bad behavior, and that if they were to be helped, it should only be under such terrible conditions that they didn't want the help in the first place. Uh, like I said, this is where things get pretty rough. I don't think your help should hurt worse than if you hadn't helped at all, but that was the philosophy at the time. If the help you gave somebody was so horrible to receive that they didn't want any help at all, that it would kind of make them pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I don't think assisting someone should be a punishment. I think that that not only is terrible for the person receiving the help, but I think it's also kind of bad for your soul as the giver of help, where if you you know, are acting like you're trying to help somebody, but it's really just a punishment, I, I don't think that's a very generous thing to do. And I think that that lack of generosity is not healthy for you as a person either. Um, I think generosity is good for us. And I think it teaches us compassion. So by punishing the people with generosity, I, I think it takes away that compassion factor. So I, I, think we're getting into rough territory here, but this was the philosophy at the time, that if you help people, you should help them in a way that was so miserable for them that they didn't want your help, and thus would get the motivation to kind of work their way up. I do think on a case-by-case -case basis, I can see the sense in this argument. I mean, we've all seen those episodes of Hoarders where somebody's not genuinely compulsively hoarding, they're just too lazy to pick up trash when they use it, you know, because, I don't know, the hoarders episodes, like, I always feel bad for the people that are so attached to their stuff that they're weeping when stuff gets thrown away. I don't feel bad at all for the people who don't mind that all of their trash is being thrown away. They were just too lazy to get out of their armchair, so they'd throw their pop can on the floor, or they, you know, relieve themselves right there in their chair. So they don't have the emotional struggle of getting rid of their things. They're genuinely just quote-unquote hoarding because they're too darn lazy to throw anything away. That bothers me. So you do see some of that on the show Hoarders as well. And so in that instance, I think those people on a case-by-case -case basis, would be the people who kind of need to force themselves out of their situation, because if you help them, you're enabling. It's like giving heroin to a drug addict. But then there are people on hoarders who are actually sick and actually crying and heartbroken to have to throw away their old pair of socks with millions of holes in them. You know, so those people do need help. But then there are people that if you help them, they're just going to use you as a source of enablement. And so I think in that sense, there was some truth to this philosophy back in Victorian times, but then there was some non-truth to it. And I think, as is the case whenever dealing with people, you need to do it on a case-by-case -case basis. I think it was wrong to make generalizations that helping people was just enabling them back in those days, because that will always be true of some people. Some people are just users, but that will always be false of other people, too, who just can't seem to get it together. Some people just need some counseling and maybe some financial advising and some opportunities, whereas other people genuinely are just there to live off other people's dime. You know, and uh, yeah, I think applying that general philosophy of don't help people because you're really just making things worse for them, um, I think that 
that shouldn't be kind of a blanket statement to everybody because, of course, it is true of some people and untrue of others. And I think that Dickens kind of makes his case for that in the story, but, of course, in a much more metaphorical sense rather than blatantly just coming out and saying it. Now, um, you know, obviously there are some people who are terribly sick or terribly injured who back in this, especially in this Victorian time, would certainly not have been able to thrive. I mean, for goodness sake, people were dying of colds and broken legs back then. <laughs> so you had to be in pretty good shape to be able to work these 16-hour days in the coal mines that they were requiring out of people. And so, you know, it took a little bit more hardiness to survive in a Victorian workforce than it does to, you know, work at like a call center where you're on a computer and on the phone. That takes a lot of mental fortitude. I've done it before, and emotionally I was a complete and total wreck, but physically it's not that hard on you, and so, you know, that's, they just had a very different uh, workforce and very different industry back then. Often work was physical rather than, you know, spending time on a screen. Um, the workhouses were thought at the time to be the best solution for this complex, should we help, should we not, at the time. Um, the labor there was completely back-breaking labor, like I said, coal mines, um, lifting heavy things, very, very physical work, and minimal, minimal food was provided. This was to encourage people to work their way out of poverty. Karl Marx saw this as leading a way to lead up to a revolution. He saw it as oppression of the lower classes and that it would inevitably lead to a violent revolution. But Dickens thought that revolutions were only what happened when real solutions were not found in another peaceful, more intelligent way. So Dickens' solution has less to do with, you know, taking money from people who earn it and giving it to people who don't because that, you know, he saw as theft, which is kind of more where Marx's head was at. Marx, of course, wanted to essentially rob at gunpoint everybody who worked hard for a living and saved their money and and worked hard to earn it and take it away from everybody who worked hard to earn it and give it to everybody who doesn't so that everybody has the same amount of stuff regardless of whether they've bothered to do anything to deserve it was kind of Marx's philosophy whereas um, Dickens comes more from a thought of well you know you're you're going to care enough about other people and relate to other people that you want to help them. He thought it should be more of a charity situation rather than in basically legal robbery situation. Then there was Thomas Paine, who wanted to, quote-unquote, solve all of this with welfare systems. This falls somewhere in between, you know, it's less radical and communist than Marx because, you know, Marx was one of the kings of communism, so it, you know, everybody's less communist than Marx, almost, until these days. And, uh, but Paine was kind of in between. He wanted to have a structure of welfare systems in place to kind of, quote-unquote, solve all of these social financial issues. Dickens was not a system guy either. He wasn't big on the government systems, wasn't big on communism, because these systems are easily abused by the greedy, the lazy, or those who simply feel entitled to someone else's earnings. These systems were, stated by Dickens, said to often cause more problems than they solved, because they basically just take away the motivation of the person to ever 
try to accomplish on their own, and all they do is cripple the people who are working hard so that eventually fewer and fewer people are working as they see their neighbor who doesn't work um, have just as much money and just as many things. So why work twice as hard for half as much? And this is kind of what leads to the collapse of communism every time it's been tried, and starvation and death and all kinds of horrible things. So Dickens already at this time period, before communism has even really been tried out that much, sees that this using a system mentality will only make things worse. His kind of idea was basically to have people care for one another and therefore want to help one another. It was supposed to be charity rather than gunpoint charity. A Christmas Carol took two months to write and it was written in the fall of 1843 and intended to be what he called a sledgehammer blow against the current ills of society. December in 1983, Mickey's Christmas Carol came out, and it was Mickey's first appearance in the mainstream in 30 years. It is an extremely condensed version of Dickens' original, and we'll go over that. Um, Scrooge McDuck plays Scrooge, but he has been based on Ebenezer Scrooge since the 1940s. And, uh, you know, it was kind of inspired by Ebenezer Scrooge, but is not a direct retelling. Um, this was kind of the last appearance of Clarence, a.k.a. Ducky Nash, as Donald Duck, making him the only original Disney voice actor left in this television production. The story starts out with the book and, to some extent, with the Muppet version, with one of my favorite lines in literature, Marley was dead to begin with. You don't get more of, like, a immediate start into a story than that. I mean, that's that's getting her done right there. That immediately grabs your attention, and so it's just it's a brilliant way to open a story. It makes me so excited. Scrooge was Marley's business partner and only mourner at his funeral. He was, overall, an extremely cold person. Dickens goes out of his way to say that Scrooge carried his own cold climate around with him. So basically, Scrooge was Elsa before Elsa was cool. So there you go. Do with that what you will. People and even seeing eye dogs gave Scrooge a lot of space. Um, the book says, better no eye at all than an evil eye. The book has Scrooge already at work at the beginning of the book. However, in Disney's version and the Muppets version, Scrooge kind of walks on scene and we see him interact, or rather not interact, with the cheery Christmas celebrators in the streets of London. This goes to the classic movie principle of show, don't tell. Obviously, you can't do that in a book. You have to tell because it's a written format. But for movies, it almost always starts with Scrooge being kind of cold to everybody in the street rather than starting with him in his bookkeeping house because you can show and not tell in this. You can get a good read on his whole personality just by walk watching him walk down the street. Unlike in the Disney movie, Scrooge does not swindle people in his job. He is a money lender. And, you know, if he were a thief and were lending unfairly, he would no longer have business. And based on his age, he's been in business for quite some time. There would be plenty of other people for people to go borrow money from. So if he was straight up stealing from his customers the way Disney accuses him of, he wouldn't be in business anymore. And he certainly wouldn't be the richest man in town. So, you know, Disney does kind of kind of just make him seem meaner at the point. I mean, 
children usually don't understand borrowing money and having interest to be charged against the money that you've borrowed and therefore I think this is kind of the easiest way for them to understand Scrooge but at the same time as a kid wouldn't you wonder why people keep going into his business if his business steals from you either way it was kind of simplified for kids in the Disney version um Bob Cratchit is, of course, played by Mickey Mouse, and in the Disney version, he asks for the day off by his tiny little fire in the office. In the book, he has better sense than this. Scrooge's nephew Fred visits and sounds off about Christmas and how awesome it is. In Disney's version, Mickey joins in, but in Dickens, again, Bob Cratchit keeps his mouth shut, as he does in every other version. Um because he already knows how Scrooge feels about Christmas, as does his nephew Fred, really, but Fred just doesn't care. Um, he's not Scrooge's employee, so I guess he doesn't have to. But, um, you know, Cratchit is smart enough to keep his mouth shut. He doesn't want to lose his job. At one point, he applauds Fred, and Scrooge does threaten to fire him. So, you know, he, he keeps it reined in and buttoned up pretty tight, because he knows that he just has to upset this guy a little bit. And because, as I mentioned before, there were so many people in the workforce at this time, he could be replaced within the hour. So he's not going to do anything to jeopardize his position. He's got a family depending on him. So while Mickey, as Bob Cratchit, does kind of clap back at Scrooge while Fred is going on about how wonderful Christmas is, original Bob Cratchit and most versions Bob Cratchit, including Kermit the Frog, just kind of wince at what... Scrooge has to say, but they keep their mouths shut. I think the reason why Disney goes ahead and has Mickey kind of intercede here with Donald as Fred is partially because Mickey needed some more lines. It is Mickey's Christmas Carol, even though it's all about Scrooge McDuck. But I think also, largely, to spare us the the long, inspiring monologue from Fred coming from Donald Duck. Can you imagine Oh, he's hard enough to understand when it's just a little bit of dialogue. So um, Fred really gives a wonderful long monologue about how there have been so many things in his life, many great things that have done him a great deal of good in his life, but brought him no financial profit. And he counts Christmas among them. And I strongly agree with that. I think Christmas is a part of what brings you joy throughout the year and makes you a joyful person. It gives you hope. It gives you strength. And this is something that Scrooge himself simply does not comprehend, that how something can be good for your life, even if it doesn't bring you a profit. And so this conversation kind of shows how he and Fred are on a completely different page here. But, um, it's it's really a very stirring speech. Um, the closest you're going to get to it, I think, in dialogue is going to be in the Jim Carrey version of A Christmas Carol or in A Muppet Christmas Carol. That Fred is probably my favorite movie Fred, and uh, he does a great job as well. He just has that jolly, happy, flurry of energy feel to him like young men do. And so I think... Um, they do great with that, but I do think this same meaningful, emotional, warm speech just would not be at all the same coming from Donald Duck. So while this is a change to the original story by having Mickey sound off and talk about generosity and friendship and family, I think it was a good call on Disney's part in this case. I'm normally not for changing the original text, but uh, 
it just wouldn't be the same coming from Donald, let's be honest. Um, he also calls it the one time of year where people treat each other with kindness and decency. Um, he talks about how um, it's the one time that people see each other as fellow travelers to the grave and not totally separate species. And this speech is meant to be kind of anti-classist. It's not so much about Scrooge himself and his isolation, but that the different classes really don't interact with each other during this time period at all if they don't have to. And they really don't look upon each other very well. Both the, the poor despise the rich and the rich despise the poor. And so... Um, it's more of a classist statement rather than a financial statement. And it, Fred, really one of his greatest joys about Christmas is that it's the time of year where people kind of overlook that and interact with each other, not based on what position they were born into, but based on the fact that they're all human and that they can all relate to each other over the magic of Christmas, the beauty of Christmas, and what it means to them in their life. It was a much more religious time period, too, so a lot of people, were more in tune with the actual original meaning of Christmas. And so, um, you know, Fred does talk about that. Charles Dickens was a very strong Christian, and um, you do get a lot of glimmers of his beliefs in the original book version of the story. You do pick up a lot of it in the Jim Carrey and the Patrick Stewart versions of the story as well. They do kind of... Uh, kind of gloss over it a lot more in the Muppet version and the Disney version. You won't see as many overtly Christian overtones. Again, the Jim Carrey version surprised me by having actual Christmas carols in it with, like, actual words like Jesus <laughs> instead of pretending that this holiday is all about Santa and giving gifts to people you like. They actually reference what the holiday is actually about. So I'm, you know, props to the Jim Carrey version. As I said before, I'm I surprised myself writing this script how often I praise that version. I really didn't anticipate it, but it actually is a pretty solid version of the story. Um this is really just meant to kind of contrast Fred's worldview with his uncle Scrooge's, you know, and his belief that the poor get what they deserve, whereas Fred's belief that he kind of wants to blur the lines of that classism and just thinks everybody should all be friends together, regardless of your financial or social situation. And so Fred kind of is immediately thrown in the picture as a direct contrast to Scrooge personality-wise, just as Bob Cratchit is thrown into the story immediately as a contrast to Scrooge financially. So he's immediately dealing with these two people who are, in different ways, his polar opposite, which I think is a very interesting situation to put your main character in in the first chapter of a story. I really love Dickens. This <laughs> is pretty incredible. He just immediately makes Scrooge super uncomfortable, and with his own nephew, no less. And Scrooge makes fun of... Um, Fred for being poor on several occasions. Fred invites Scrooge to dinner, and Scrooge, of course, refuses because he's a grumpy old grumpy pants. <laughs> you know, really, there's just... I mean, I can't go to dinner. That would be too much fun. <laughs> I don't know. You know, he's... I don't know, he's crazy. But he mocks Fred for getting married, which 
you know, we understand Scrooge, Scrooge's disdain for the poor. It was a very popularly held belief back then. It was very, very common for people to have a disdain for the poor, especially someone like Scrooge who came from a lower-income background. But this attack on Fred's marriage seems to be totally out of left field if you don't understand that English economists at the time did not approve of anyone getting married until they had the income required to support a whole family. So you weren't even supposed to be looking at the girls until you could also provide for a couple of kids and the girl. Women, it wasn't totally unheard of for women to be in the workforce. We see... um, Bob Cratchit's daughter Martha has a job later in the story. However, often once you got married, you either stopped working or you had a considerably lower income job like a seamstress or um, a housekeeper. You know, it was just a lot less common to have the woman be a really significant financial income, you know, in at the time. You just weren't... Women had jobs, but they didn't have careers, I guess is where I'm going with this. And so in order for a man to propose, it was considered irresponsible for a man to propose to a woman if he was not already qualified to not only provide for her, but for several children that would probably be showing up pretty soon. And it's apparent that Scrooge has this philosophy towards marriage, not just because of his past, but because of how he mocks Fred here. Him mocking Fred about getting married is not really, as we tend to interpret it, you know, Scrooge being kind of a jerk about Fred being a romantic and being sentimental, which is how I used to take it as a kid. He's actually just a different way of mocking Fred for having a lower income, which is no less kind of a jerk thing to do, but it's just a different way of doing it. And so marrying for love was kind of considered sentimental nonsense at the time. It was really only heard of among the poorer classes because the wealthier people understood at that point that marrying to social advantage was much more practical. Fred counters this to say that Scrooge can't use his marriage as an excuse not to see him because he didn't come see him when he was signal, or sorry, signal, single. (laughs) I've been talking too much today, which I love this clap back. Look, you can't say that you're not coming to see me because I'm married because you didn't come see me when I wasn't married. And I kind of love Fred. He's probably my favorite character in A Christmas Carol, even though he's only in like two or three scenes maybe four scenes, but not not very much of it. And the reason why he's one of my favorites is because he's like the nicest, friendliest guy, but at the same time, he's, I think, one of the only people in the entire story that is completely comfortable going ahead and getting sassy right back at Scrooge. Scrooge is comfortable being a sassy, grumpy old cuss to anybody in his path, and so it's kind of nice to see somebody come back at him and challenge him, because everybody around him, from the the seeing-eye dogs in the street to Bob Cratchit, just cowers. Um, with the exception of the Muppet Christmas Carol where Miss Piggy claps back a little bit, but that's not canon. That's not what happens in the book. Fred, even in the book, will go ahead and sass right back at Scrooge in a very friendly, loving way, too. Like, he absolutely does not mean any harm by it. I think he's just trying to get Scrooge to kind of look at his life and be like, dude, what what are you talking about? Come on. And I think he needs that. I think it's very healthy. And for that reason, I think... Fred is a fantastic character because there's just absolutely no malice in him. He's the jolliest, happiest guy, even though his uncle is being completely horrible and rude to him. 
and he's sassy, but he's never at all malicious. Like, there's not a vicious bone in him. He doesn't yell at Scrooge. He doesn't have a big fit. Even later in the story, when he's among other people and actually could say rude things about Scrooge, he still doesn't really that much. And so, for that reason, Fred is, to me, above and beyond one of the... uh, best versions, or sorry, best uh, characters in the story. I absolutely love him, and I love people that are like that, that are just jolly and happy, but at the same time not afraid to get a little sassy as long as it's all in good fun, and I love it. Um, Disney's version of Scrooge is also pretty nasty to Fred, but not nearly as bad as he is in the book, and I think a lot of that is because it is Disney. You have to somehow make kids still like this character by the end so you can't make him like irredeemably mean like you do with adults i think adults we've all had enough bad moments where we've said things we regret that we're willing to forgive a little more of that kind of thing whereas i think kids are oh no that's the bad guy (laughs) you know and they have this very black and white that's the bad guy not this is a good guy who did something he regrets so um i think disney just doesn't want to paint scrooge that badly though we see Uh, Some pretty rough lines from him later. Um, It states here that Bob Cratchit made about 15 shillings a week, which was actually a fair and normal rate for his, his job as a clerk at the time. But it is stretching things when you consider that he has a wife and six kids. So when Scrooge picks on Cratchit here about saying, you know, my... 15 shilling a week clerk with a wife and six children. This is him picking on Cratchit for the same thing that he jabbed at, at, uh, fret about. It's not a jab about Cratchit's wages, because really, that would only be a a jab at himself. If he were paying Cratchit unfairly, that makes him look bad, not Bob. This is a jab at people who get married before they can properly provide, and um, so in that sense, you know, again, he wouldn't jab at Bob for being underpaid, because that only points the finger back at him. This is him jabbing at Bob for making what he considers a terrible decision by getting married before he can provide comfort for his family. And, uh, yeah, so him, you see right away in the same scene, both him going at Fred and going at Bob over the same thing, there's clearly a chip on old Scroogey's shoulder for, uh, the whole getting married before you should situation. Hmm. He thinks he doth protest too much. So on his way out, Fred lets in two portly gentlemen who come to collect charity. Scrooge McDuck uses kind of backwards logic to remind them that if the poor get out of poverty, then these men will lose their jobs. So in that sense, he says he's helping them. That's in the Disney version. In the book and most other versions, Scrooge kind of states that his taxes go to the prisons and workhouses. So in his mind, he's already doing his part and those who are badly off should go there. When the men say that some of the poor would rather die than go there, Scrooge claps back and says that if they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population, which is kind of one of the most well-known quotes out of the book and the movies. And it does come back to haunt him later, as many of his meaner quotes do. But as an elderly, feeble man with a cold, and he's, he's still working on Christmas Eve, so I suppose he's not in the mood to hear about anybody else's excuses about not working. It would be my guess of where this comes from. Um, so Dickens himself worked 10-hour days in a shoe polish factory when he was 12 years old. He made about 6 shillings a week. That's about 32 pounds or $43 in today's money. 
his whole family was in debtor's prison because they owed so much money. So this $43 was all that he had personally to get by at 12 years old. So I can't imagine facing the world all alone at 12, but Dickens did. And so when we hear a lot of criticisms of the poor, but also a lot of criticisms of the wealthy. This is coming from a man who had been on kind of both ends of the spectrum at different points during his life. Modern interpretations try to turn this story into an assault on the wealthy, but you have to recall that the two charity collectors actually are wealthy people. They're deliberately described as gentlemen, which back then was more of a actual social status of somebody of higher birth than a comment on your manners and your character, which is more what it is today. Gentlemen are just considered people who tend to be more chivalrous and better mannered than other people, at least for me as an American, since we don't really have, um, you know, kind of that same social hierarchy with nobility and gentry and all of that kind of thing. So gen gentlemen here just pertains to a certain attitude, a certain responsibility for those around you, you know, to look out for people and a certain set of manners. Um, in the time where this was written, it's a little bit more literal. Gentlemen was a sign of social status. Um, and so they're specifically referred to as gentlemen. They're, they're referred to as being very well-dressed. They're also described as portly, so they must be getting enough to eat at a time when food was scarce and hard to come by. Dickens' commentary is far from Robin Hood's socialism. He sees the true evil here as an apathy to other humans, but believes that governmental systems do more harm than good. Indeed, it could be argued that when the government does your charity for you, you never look your fellow man in the eye and see them as a human being, whether you're the giver or the taker in that situation. So if anything, this makes the problem worse, because it makes it easier to dehumanize the person either giving you charity or the person you're giving charity to when you never have to look them in the face and be involved with them. Or in some ways, I think community service is an even greater example of an act of charity just because you have to be involved with the people that you're serving. So if anything, this kind of makes the problems worth, worse just as Dickens suggested would be the case with social programs. He did not want to villainize the rich, but to encourage them to connect with people of various social class so that they would naturally, personally take care of each other because they naturally, personally cared for each other, which is very different than kind of forced charity. Seeing as these guys weren't going to get across to Scrooge, no matter how politely they tried to recommend that he donate, the gentlemen move on. Then Scrooge threatens a Christmas caroler. This seems to happen in one way or another in every single version. I just thought this was funny that this is such a minor moment, and yet it is kind of consistently in every single version. I think it just, they do it in every version of the story just to kind of emphasize what a jerk this guy is. My favorite is Bean the Bunny in the Muppet version, whose adorable enthusiasm when he's caroling only makes the rejection much more brutal. So, you know, I don't know. I like the Muppet version for that one. And I told you, I'd, I'd give you a little pokes in the direction of which versions are my favorite. Uh, the weather turns colder here. We get some great narration from Dickens. And we see Scrooge grumbling about how Cratchit will want the whole day off tomorrow, I suppose, as opposed to Cratchit asking for the time off like Mickey did. The Muppet version is more in line with the book here. Um, 
He comments on the hardship caused by caused to him by having to provide paid time off and having to, you know, pay for work with that basically doesn't happen. And of course, Bob reminds him that it only happens once a year. Unlike the book, Scrooge does take um, the pay for the time off out of Mickey's paycheck. So that's kind of a difference with the Disney version. Also, uh, Mickey only takes half a day off, which I guess if you're not getting paid, you wouldn't want to take as much time off. Um, my hubby also does a job where if you have a holiday off, you actually have to make the hu the holiday up on another day, which sometimes feels just as stingy when you kind of think about how Christmas is a massive international holiday now, but was rarely celebrated in Dickens' day. Still, having both of us having worked in the healthcare industry, we're happy to have the holiday off at all makeup days or no makeup days because doctors, nurses, nurses aides, kitchen staff, cleaning staff, and everyone else in that field are probably working as you're listening at this very moment. The Muppets kind of miss a step here by giving Kermit a lovely peacoat on his way home from the office. Um, the book states clearly that Cratchit has no coat and uses a comforter or blanket to keep warm as he leaves work. The Jim Carrey version of the story is the one who gets it right here, I think. Scrooge has dinner at a local tavern while he goes over his books, and then he goes home. The Muppets and the book tell us that this gloomy house used to belong to Jacob Marley, old dead to begin with himself. Dickens does not describe Scrooge's door knocker, but just states that Scrooge is very familiar with it, having seen it twice a day for the last seven years, and not prone to be the imaginative type, and had barely thought of Jacob Marley since his death. Yet, in the knocker, he sees Marley's face, his hair curiously stirred by, as if by a breath of hot air. Then it suddenly changes back, and Scrooge enters the door. In the book, the Marley doorknob stares at Scrooge, unblinking and silent, but Disney and the Muppets have it called out Scrooge's name. I don't recall with Patrick Stewart or Jim Carrey whether they make any noise out of the door knocker at the time, but I think Dickens's version of it being kind of silent and staring at him is definitely the most creaky. Dickens then describes Scrooge kind of exploring his house, checking for intruders after this unsettling event. He also states that Scrooge uses a dip, or a dipped tallow candle, while exploring. This is in character for him because they were a lot cheaper than fancier candles, but he blames this dimness for what appears to be a hearse leading up his wide staircase. As the books and the Muppets say, dark was cheap, and Scrooge liked it. Disney Scrooge has no candle. The house is lit by the moonlight, because in their happy version of the world, there's no fog or pollution in London. It also has no hearse, because kids' movie. They do make the house look a bit dirty and creepy. Book Scrooge has a cleaning lady, so the house is empty and dark, but it's nice and well-kept, more like the Muppet version. Scrooge finds no intruder, so he sits by his fireplace to a small pan of gruel left by the housekeeper. While most versions have him eating the gruel, the book is the only version I have seen that mentions this is because he has a head cold. The rest also don't mention the dinner at the pub. He double locks himself in for the night and settles himself into his gruel. 
Disney's ghost, played by Goofy, pulls a few pranks to get Scrooge nice and spooked. In every other version, he is feeling uneasy, but there are no overt hauntings just yet. Dickens describes Scrooge's massive fireplace with tiles that have images from the Bible, but Scrooge only has Marley on his mind. Slowly, every bell in the house begins to swing and then ring. Jim Carrey's version does this very, very well. Scrooge hears the approach of footsteps and heavy chains, but he refuses to believe what he's hearing until Marley himself walks through the sturdy closed door. The fire flares up and then calms down. Every version does this part well, showing the heavy chains and the transparent ghost, though Disney's goofy Disney's is goofy, so they do add some physical comedy. Um, Marley is offered a seat and takes it before pointing out that Scrooge doesn't believe in him. Scrooge famously blames the vision on indigestion, and the go- ghost sits still, but his hair still whips about like it's in a high wind. Again, Jim Carrey's version for the win here. I really can't believe I'm saying it. Marley unwraps his bandage from around his head and his jaw drops. Patrick Stewart's version of Scrooge very politely replaces the jaw, but in Jim Carrey's version, the talking with the hanging jaw plays an icky, horrifying, and slightly funny version, which kind of makes for an uncomfortable clash of emotions, but again, you know, I don't think the scene is supposed to make you comfortable, so it works. It's icky. Oh, the sound, like, of the squelching of the... Ugh, it's gross. Um, if you have little, little kids, that version, the Jim Carrey version, is pretty accurate to the book, and as such may not be quite for little, little folks. This kind of freaks Scrooge out, and he finally confesses to believing. Um, Disney Scrooge believes right away without traumatizing the audience. And when Scrooge asks why spirits walk the earth, Marley tells him that the spirits of men must walk among their fellow human beings, if not in life, then in death. When Scrooge is asks about the chain, um, Marley is surprised because Scrooge has one just as long and heavy seven Christmases ago. Scrooge asks Marley for comfort, and he has none to give. It is brought by better ministers than Marley to better men than Scrooge. Scrooge is starting to see what this symbolism all means for him and tells Marley that he was a good businessman, to which Marley replies that he should have made mankind his business, shaking the chain meaningfully. Jim Carrey and Patrick Stewart's versions quote the book most of this whole conversation here, whereas Goofy more sums it up pretty briefly, which is probably best when it comes to like his skill set and vocabulary. The Muppets do it with a musical number and Pepper's ghost effect that had little kid me hiding and leaving the room whenever possible. I don't know why this particular scene freaked me out so much as a kid, but the Marley and Marley scene really freaked me out as a kid. But as far as the ghostliness of the scene, the Jim Carrey and Patrick Stewart versions are the closest to the dialogue and imagery that the book brings to mind. And with that, I'm going to start in a slight pause here. Anchor only lets me record about an hour at a time, so I will be back with you for part two in just a little bit. Hey guys, Lemonade Mermaid here for a Southern Fried Story Time, and uh, I'm excited to get started on part two of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, so let's dive right in. Marley in the book says that he has been sitting beside Scrooge for a long time, 
for many, many years, in fact, and that Scrooge couldn't see him. How creepy is that, by the way? I mean, Dickens doesn't say how creepy is that, but seriously, how spooky is that, that this ghost has just been chilling with Scrooge for years, and he doesn't even know it. I think that's one of the scariest things in the book. And he doesn't know why Scrooge can see him now, but he begs Scrooge to learn from him and the other ghosts. Jacob tells Scrooge that he will be haunted for three nights in a row, the first two nights at one o'clock in the morning and the last night at midnight. Scrooge looks out the window as Marlene goes to leave through it and finds the world is full of ghosts. I mean, absolutely everywhere. And they're mourning at their inability to help people as they refuse to help people in life. Again, the Patrick Stewart and Jim Carrey versions do this scene incredibly well. It's absolutely terrifying. It's just how, when you read the book, it's just how I pictured it. It's crazy. Um, the Muppets and Disney kind of leave the mass haunting part out again with both children's movie, right? I mean, let's have a little mercy on the kiddos. It's funny that Scrooge asks Marley if he can have all of the ghosts together in one night and get it over with, because in every movie version I've ever seen, that's exactly how it goes. The Muppets even comment on it. Disney's version of Scrooge now inspects the house and then lets out one last humbug of disbelief before bed, whereas the other Scrooges all inspected the house after seeing the door knocker, but before talking to Marley. The rest of them are all kind of convinced that the haunting was real, and it just is what it is. Disney's Scrooge is just kind of like, eh, I'm pretty sure this isn't a real thing. Book Scrooge now tries to convince himself that he dreamt of Jacob and is so scared that he goes to bed around 2 a.m. However, he awakens to the church bell striking midnight. So he comments repeatedly that he must have slept through a whole day, because how otherwise could he wake up at midnight? He thinks about this until 1, and then his room fills with light. The Muppet version of The Ghost of Christmas Past is my favorite, but Jim Carrey's version is the most accurate to the book, where it says that it looks kind of like an old man, kind of like a child, and kind of as though the head is a dancing flame. Um, in Disney's version, it's Jiminy Cricket. In the book, Scrooge asks the spirit to douse the light coming from him. This is symbolic of Scrooge using the present to kind of hide from the light given by the lessons of his past. The ghost takes Scrooge through a wall, and they appear on a country road during the day. Scrooge is now in his childhood home and finds himself tearful and nostalgic. Here they find Scrooge in a classroom. His only friends were the ones that he met in books like Alibaba and Robinson Crusoe. We have been told that Scrooge is not prone to imagination, but that was not always the case as we see him escaping into literature from his everyday dreary life. Later, we see his sister enter the school to take him home for Christmas. The ghost comments on the goodness of the sister and how her only child is Fred. This makes Scrooge a little uncomfortable as he realizes that he really hasn't been treating his nephew in a way that honors the memory of his sister that he loved so much. Then they are moved to a factory where he sees his old master Fezziwig. This is the point where Disney joins Scrooge. They skip the whole scene where his mean father warms up and his sister brings him home so they can he can stop escaping his life through books. The Muppets show him as a child, but they also leave out the sister. So again, Jim Carrey for the win. 
I really didn't plan on saying that this often. Having a lonely and potentially abusive childhood helps us see part of how Scrooge could take such a drastic left turn into hating Christmas. And so it kind of gives us a better idea of how he went from being a relatively normal kid into such a extremely hateful person. If you come from that kind of background, then you're more prone to you know, live a life of anger when you come from anger. Um, I don't know, I just kind of hate that they leave his sister out of so many versions because she really does, you know, by getting to see her as a child, even though it's just for a moment, she's such a cheerful, happy person that it really does kind of solidify Scrooge's connection to Fred and kind of point out what exactly he's missing because she is so much like what we've seen of Fred. And so, you know, you're kind of forced to look at the fact that he's really missing out on kind of a second incarnation of his sister that he misses so much. Disney Scrooge, of course, skips the whole childhood scene and goes right to Fezziwig, who is played by Mr. Toad, at a huge party. Scrooge in this version is shy, whereas in the book he's a jolly, outgoing young man, much like Fred. The ghost then downplays Fezziwig's generosity in throwing the party, and Scrooge, the man who, you know, pinches every penny he has ever touched, actually defends Fezziwig spending money on others, saying that it wasn't about the money, it was about giving happiness to others. But he stops at a look from the spirit as it reminds him that this is out of character for him. This is kind of where we start seeing the beginning of Scrooge's transformation. The first hint of it was when he gets kind of nostalgic when he goes to his hometown, because up until then we've seen him not really care about anyone or anything. So to have him get emotional at all is kind of the start of a change. The only emotion we've seen from him. Thank you. 
goes through sitting by a fair young girl, this is Belle, Dickens states that while he was not a yet the miser, that he would become the saint and I am beginning to show signs of the obsession taking hold. This girl wore a mourning dress and accuses Scrooge of replacing her with a golden idol. Scrooge is frustrated that the world is harder on poverty than anything, yet condemns the pursuit of wealth. We see Belle release him from their agreement and their engagement on the grounds that he no longer loves her and she has no dowry, so she is worth nothing to him. Like the Marley scene, this plays out fairly well in most versions, pretty pretty accurately, just like the scene where he reescaped with Marley. The Muppets have kind of a heartbreaking song that's beautifully performed. The Jim Carrey version, however, is very, very close to the actual dialogue from the book. Most of it is spot on. But the Mickey Mouse version is weird. Instead of breaking up because Belle sees Scrooge leave behind all of his virtues for gain and thus loses all of the characteristics about him that she loves the most, Disney instead makes it comical by having Scrooge kind of charge Belle a very high interest rate on the honeymoon cottage that she's buying from him. They make it less of a reluctant but well thought out determined decision on Belle's part, and instead they make Scrooge wickedly gleeful about sucking every dime out of everyone, even her. Instead of marrying her, he forecloses on their honeymoon cottage that he was making her buy from him. Either way, he loses her, and either way, this is what is best for Belle. Now, he sees Belle a few years ago, seven years ago, with her husband and children, it's not only a vision of the life that he could have had, but a moment where husband and wife comment on Marley's death and leaving Scrooge completely alone in the whole world. This scene is left out of every movie version I've ever seen, which is kind of sad. I, I like that we kind of go back and touch base and catch up on Belle later. Um, I've mentioned that it's not in any of the movies I've seen, however, it is in the Flintstones version of the story, if I recall correctly, but I think that's the only one where we get this scene where we catch up on Belle years later and find that she is happy with somebody who is in love with her more than anything else. At this point, Scrooge has had it. He wrestles with the ghost whose face appears to be all of the different faces we've seen so far, again, Jim Carrey version for the winner, having faced his past and his own loneliness forces him to reflect on his life. Exhausted, he falls asleep. In Disney's version, his only regret about his past is himself. In the book and all of the other versions, he's begun to regret more than that. When he sees himself as a child, he comments on how he wishes he had given something to the caroler boy. And when he kind of sees himself as a young man just starting out in his career, he kind of thinks back to to Bob Cratchit and how he wishes he had been more supportive of him, too. So this is the beginning of seeing that change take place in him. Scrooge wakes up at 1 o'clock the next morning and goes out to investigate a strange light. So we have him again sleeping through another 24-hour period. He finds his room well-lit, decorated, and having a large feast. The book states that the ghost has dark brown hair, but in most movies it's usually depicted as red. This may be because most literary scholars see this ghost as a depiction of Father Christmas, who 
I mean, St. Nicholas is often depicted as having red hair when he was younger, so I'm not sure if that's part of the St. Nicholas connection is in giving the ghost red hair, but, you know, I'm not any Dickensian scholar, so I'm sure some of them could clear this up for me, but he is always giant, generous, and jolly. Everything that Scrooge is not, and just having him around intimidates Scrooge because he's so much the opposite of everything that Scrooge is. Either way, Scrooge is willing to learn and willingly goes with the spirit, even asking the spirit to lead the way so that he can learn the lessons that he needs to learn. Disney Scrooge is more resistant to learning a new life. The ghost is played by Willie the Giant from Mickey and the Beanstalk from Fun and Fancy Free. While Disney now makes a big deal about the general being generous to others and Scrooge resists, the book describes a beautiful London scene. The spirit blesses each dish of food as it's walked through the streets to its respective home, and the blessing also has the ability to stop other people from arguing. Basically seems to be blessing people with an overall feeling of the Christmas spirit. Scrooge accuses the spirit of harming the poor by wanting all businesses to close on Sunday. In these days, the poor didn't have ovens of their own in their own houses, so the only way for them to have a hot meal, they needed to cook it at a local baker's for a small charge. This is a way that the baker could still make money on Sunday when businesses weren't allowed to be open because of what they called blue laws. The poor could then come in and have a hot meal, often their only hot meal of the week. Scrooge argues that the poor Commentary I heard here, um, Cratchit is a kind of form of the word crash, which is French for the nativity scene. However, it can also be translated as to eat heartily. So um, a lot of people think that Dickens had both of these definitions in mind when choosing the name for Bob Cratchit. It's crash, which means to eat heartily. Now, when you have six kids and a wife that eat heartily, as we see in the Muppet version, that can be a little tough. Now, Mrs. Cratchit has had to make over her dress twice because they didn't have the money for new clothes, but still tries to look nice with lots of ribbons, as do her girls. The book describes the warmth of the Cratchit family and their feast. We meet the whole family, including Tiny Tim. Dickens describes the feast in great detail, goose and potatoes and gravy and all kinds of goodness. When Scrooge shows concern for Tiny Tim, the ghost replies that if he's going to die, he'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. The ghost chastises Scrooge about his flippancy about other people's lives. In the Disney, Willie takes Scrooge right to Cratchit's house, and the Muppets have a wonderful London Christmas scene that really sets the scene like the book does. Disney's Cratchit family is smaller, but the feast is smaller. No potatoes, no oranges, no gravy. Economists theorize that the Cratchits are poor because of Bob's spending, not because of Scrooge's pay. They have a four-bedroom house in London. London, guys. And a huge goose. And 
a huge bowl of oranges, which were exotic and one of the most expensive imports available at that time in history, plus all the ribbons. But in all the movie versions, the feast is pitiful and tiny compared to the book, where it's actually a pretty big meal for the Cratchits. Here, in all versions, it is heavily implied that Tim will soon pass away. Now, Disney's version goes right to the next ghost, so let's go back to the book. Scrooge visits many other homes at Christmas. Again, props to Jim Carrey and Patrick Stewart versions for showing Christmas at sea and Christmas in a, um, a lighthouse and coal mines and all kinds of stuff. When we pop into a, the party at Fred's house, the whole party is making fun of Scrooge, but Fred feels says that he feels bad for Scrooge and plans to keep on inviting him to Christmas every year, even if he says no. Scrooge even begins to have fun with the party. As they travel on, Scrooge notices the spirit aging. It is then that Scrooge notices two half-starved, horrible children under the ghost's robe. They are wolfish and evil-looking. They are man's children. The boy is ignorance and the girl is want. Beware of them both, but especially the boy, for he is doomed. When Scrooge asks, have they no refuge, no resource, the spirit claps back. Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Again, throwing Scrooge's own quotes back in his face, which you know I love. While Disney and the Muppets ignore this scene because the sight of these kind of animalistic children on the brink of starvation is very, very disturbing, Jim Carrey's version just tackles it right head on, and then the ghost vanishes at the stroke of twelve. Scrooge now finds a cloaked figure of the ghost of Christmas future in all versions. Scrooge confesses that he's very afraid and shows, again, the same eagerness to learn. In the financial center of London, Scrooge hears colleagues discussing a man who was well-known but not well-liked and had recently passed away. Scrooge was sure that there was some reason to see this, though it seemed pretty trivial to him. He sees a rag-and-bone man, basically like a pawnbroker, um, and here he sees a charwoman who is selling goods she stole from the dead man, along with two other people who plundered from the dead man. Now, we haven't met this character yet, but she's actually his charwoman. That is a woman who helps people clean, you know, deep clean their house. And so Scrooge at this point knows this woman. We don't know where from yet at this point. Um, Scrooge is in kind of denial if he sees that his own housekeeper is selling goods stolen that should look pretty familiar to him, and yet he isn't quite caught on to what's going on. I think he does know. He's just, you know, trying to be in denial at the point. Um, he asks the spirit if anyone has any feelings about the man's death, and the spirit takes him to a couple who are relieved by the death because they owed the man money. Not getting quite what he was looking for, Scrooge asks to see the Cratchits. However, at the quiet little Cratchit house, they find that Tiny Tim has passed away. They find that Bob saw Fred that day, who offered to help in any way that he could, and is hoping that Fred might be able to find him in his apprenticeship for an older son. Scrooge asks who the dead man was, and the ghost points to Scrooge's grave. In Disney's version, the ghost of Christmas Future shows the Cratchits mourning at Tiny Tim's grave, Two weasels are digging Scrooge's grave, and it is revealed by Pete, who is the ghost. Scrooge falls into his own grave, which seems to turn into a portal to hell, screaming that he'll change. 
Scrooge in the book clutches the spirit's robe and asks why they would show him all of this if he was beyond all hope. He swears he'll change. In the Muppets version does this directly from the book, as does Patrick Stewart's, which also has the best laugh from Scrooge when he realizes that he's home and safe. Most awkward laugh ever. If my mom is listening, she'll she she'll tell you. It it's pretty awful, but hilarious at the same time. It's super cringy and uncomfortable, but it would be when it's your first time doing it in what, probably forty years. Scrooge calls out and asks a young boy what day it is, and somehow it's still Christmas Day. Scrooge sends the boy to buy a giant turkey and pays him to do so, then sends it to Bob. The Ghost of Christmas Future does not speak in the book or in any of the movies besides Disney, because the future is not concrete, so anything he says would be final and irrevocable. I think it would appear less foreboding, or sorry, I think he would appear less foreboding if he were projecting a happier future than the one that Scrooge is headed towards. Disney Scrooge leaves home in his nightgown, um, and donates to the charity gentleman. In the book and the other movie versions, he dresses in his finest clothes before he leaves, and then goes into the street, exchanging friendly greetings with everyone. He then goes to Fred and enjoys a party with his family. It goes this way for everyone except Disney, where he meets Fred in the street and says that he will be coming to the party. And in the Muppet version, he goes to Fred's party, as well as visiting the Cratchits. The next day, Scrooge catches Bob in coming in 18 minutes late for work. He works up like he's going to actually start kind of a fight with Bob. In fact, in the book, Bob is actually preparing for a physical confrontation, and you see him kind of jump back in the Jim Carrey version, kind of expecting there to be some kind of altercation as well, but it doesn't happen. And instead, Scrooge actually gives him a raise, and he becomes a new, reformed man, and his intervention leads to Tiny Tim living a long, happy life. In Disney and the Muppets, Scrooge checks out the Cratchits on Christmas Day, as well as Fred, probably to keep some brevity to the movie. In fact, the Muppets version ends with the scene at the Cratchits' house where they all have Christmas dinner together, so he's unable to surprise Bob Cratchit at work the next morning, which I think is a much more comical scene, and I'm glad that they stuck with it for the Jim Carrey version, and I believe the Patrick Stewart version, but I can't remember for sure. Um... Disney's Scrooge refuses to change until the Christmas future scares him straight. The book, however, offers several kind of instances where we see the transformation happening gradually, along with a great deal more social commentary that Disney gives. Just because, again, children's movie, I don't think the kids would have necessarily understood Victorian social climate at the time. Overall, for overall entertainment value, I think I like the Muppet version the best. However, with... When it comes to closeness to the original book, I think the Jim Carrey version wins, with the exception of a few obvious 3D gigs, because the movie did come out when 3D movies in the theater were the biggest thing, and it was one of them. So if you're watching, you do see some overdramatic scenes, like a chase scene with a hearse, and I think a lot of this was just to show off the kind of 3D nature that the movie came into theaters in. It's the first version that I think is kind of a worthy visual representation of Dickens' work. When you read the book, you definitely see a lot of the scenes as they play out in the Jim Carrey version, so I think it's kind of the best representation of that. 
For the best version of the story overall, though, read the original Charles Dickens. It's really short. It won't take you long to get through. It's beautifully written, and there's really no excuse not to. So just go ahead and read it.